Hello and welcome to episode 81 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Evan Grant. Evan covers the Texas Rangers for the Dallas Morning News. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Evan underscore P underscore Grant. Evan, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. My pleasure, Ross. How's everything going with you? Everything's going very well. I ask everyone this right at the top of the show, so I want to ask this to you as well. But what initially got you into baseball in the first place? Well, I grew up a baseball fan, wanted to work in sports, knew that I wasn't going to be an athlete, and um, just kind of was drawn to newspapers because uh, of the important place they had in in our family household um, every day. And uh, one thing led to another, and I started clerking uh, at the Atlanta paper when I was 15 and haven't left the newsroom since. Did you grow up as a collector? Were you into baseball cards or autographs or anything like that? Oh, absolutely. I um, I did grow up collecting cards. Uh, not so much autographs, though. I, I you know I was uh, I wanted autographs because I wanted to meet players, and uh, but I didn't. I, I, it wasn't like I was collecting them for financial gain or anything. Um, I've got a baseball here that. Uh, um, I think it was the spring of 1977. Um, my dad and I were in uh, in Fort Lauderdale, and we happened to be at Yankee Spring Training. And somehow, I was able to get an old beat-up baseball signed by uh, both Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford. And I wrote "Yankees" on it in my terrible handwriting, but uh, it's a very prized possession. It sits here in my office. I want to ask you about. The Rangers, we're going to shift focus to the Rangers. We'll do some Hall of Fame talk a little later in the podcast. But the Rangers, I think, went into the offseason with the hopes of landing Otani. I think he was their big plan for the offseason. And they missed out, even though they had the most money to get him. I'm curious how much you think losing out on Otani messed up their entire offseason plans. Uh, I, I think it took them from any thought that they'd be aggressive to... Um, a more, I don't want to say stagnant perspective, but the idea that uh, they were going to look at what they had here. Um, and I think that's, that's been kind of their, their operating stance ever since they moved out, uh, ever since they lost out on them. They, they had some other pitching moves that they knew that they needed to make and, and they did make some of those, um, but in terms of going after any of the, the big-time free agents or, or trading uh, a big package of prospects, I think the Rangers' perspective right now is they're in something of a, of a bridge period. Uh, they've got some young talent that has, has arrived in the big leagues, some young talent in guys like Odor, Mazzara, and Gallo who have at different points in time have had success but still have some, some uh, steps they've got to take. And they've got some players that they've got to find out about. They've got Willie Calhoun. They've got the liner to Shields. They have uh, potentially Britt Nicholas as a backup catcher. Uh, still jerks and Profar is in the picture. And, and so I think that right now their perspective is they're going to allow as many of these young guys an opportunity to win jobs and play in 2018 and see where the chips fall and see what they really have and then they may make a bigger splash going forward. Internally, what do you think the Rangers' expectations are for their season this year? Do you think their front office sees the team as a playoff contender? 
I think they see themselves as uh, uh, needing some things to, to, to fall right to be to be a contender. They realize that they're not favorites. They realize that the Astros are going to be the favorite in the American League West. I think that uh, if anything caught them by surprise in the Otani uh, situation, it's that the Angels ended up with them, and the Angels have gotten very aggressive uh, this winter. And so I think they, they, they understand that they've got to have some things fall right. I do feel like they they feel that those things could fall right and they could contend for a playoff spot, but they realize that they are by no stretch of the imagination in the, um, in the driver's seat, so to speak, the way they were uh, for several years previously. And I think that's a big reason why this team is not going to go out and, and make a big move for a number one pitcher. I don't know that a number one pitcher would change their, would change their position uh, or their chances dramatically. And, and if you do go out and sign a Darvish or an Arietta, uh, you're still probably another year or two away. And, and, and you do that now. You sign those guys for, for big, big money up front. And then all of a sudden when you do kind of time up the arrival of some of your young pitching, do, uh, do get the, the growth of the young players, when all that happens, then you're going to look around and you've got a big, big contract much the way they do with Sinshu Chu right now in the outfield, that kind of weighs them down. So I think they're 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 trying to put the brakes uh, on on a few things and and kind of line things up again so that their prospects, their young players, and their ability to to inflate payroll where needed all kind of line up better. I want to ask you a little bit about Adrian Beltre. Beltre, of course, got his 3,000th hit last year with the Rangers. He's been great ever since he signed there. Uh, he's going to the Hall of Fame at some point. He's 38 home runs away from 500 home runs. But this is the last year of his extension that he signed with the Rangers a few years ago. Before we get into what his future plans may be, just tell me a little bit about what's he, what he's like to cover and if you have a favorite Beltre story that you may share. Yeah, my favorite Beltre story is... Um any time that I can kind of make him laugh. And uh, um, we had that situation in the aftermath of the uh, Rugnetto Dor Jose Bautista um, punch. Uh, I asked Bill Trey, standing at his locker, I said, did you see the punch? And he clearly did see the punch because he was uh, very close to pulling Bautista out of the, out of the whole kerfuffle. And so he said, of course I saw the punch. And um, uh, I, then I followed up with it. I said, uh, did, you, um, did you hear the punch? And uh, he just kind of looked down at the floor and smiled and tried to hold in a laugh. But it was clear that uh, he got the joke, that there had been a pretty solid connection there and um, that uh, – that it was it was heard by everybody, and um, it's funny to watch Adrian just kind of squirm a little bit. Um, as a player, uh, what amazes me is you know you look at the number of games he missed last year were significant due to the calf injury and, and the hamstring injury, and it was frustrating for him. But you look at his numbers that he put together on the field extrapolate them out over the season, he's an NBA, an MVP candidate player. Uh, I know that's easy to sit here and say, say, okay, you can just kind of pace that out over a 162-game season, but the guy has not lost anything when he's on the field. I, I think maybe 
he made a little bit of a mistake by going to the WBC after he had first had the calf injury. Um, and I think that may have put him in a bad spot. I don't think he would ever acknowledge that. Uh, but I also know that, you know, he treasures uh, both his, uh, his culture and his history of being from the Dominican and wanted an opportunity to have one more chance to win that WBC title with the Dominican team. And he's also, you know, very much treasures the, the chance to win a World Series before he retires. He realizes his career is, is starting to wind down and, and that those chances are few and far between for guys. And, and he would like one more opportunity to, uh, to get there and, and win the ultimate prize. And I think that means more to him than, than the Hall of Fame. And the Hall of Fame still will mean an awful lot to him. Let's not, I, I don't want to belittle that at all. Beltre is, I mean, without question, one of the best players in the history of the franchise. He's 38 home runs away from from 500. It's unlikely he's going to do that this year. If the Rangers fall out of contention and he's still productive, is there any chance they move him? Yeah, I think there's a very good chance they move him. Again, I think the Rangers are walking down dual paths right now, and and rather than commit themselves one way or another uh, with with no guarantees, if things go right and they contend, uh, they could add some guys at, at, at the deadline. If things don't go right, uh, providing Beltre is healthy, providing Beltre reminds, remain, remains a productive player, uh, Adrian's going to have significant value to a team that's in the middle of a race. Same thing goes for Cole Hamels. Um, and the Rangers may have some other pieces that they can deal at that point in time to kind of accelerate uh, what would be a rebuild process. Uh, so I think that's that's the kind of narrow path that they're walking is, yeah, they'd like to thread that needle and contend, but they also realize that if they don't, they've got some pieces that they can they can move uh, to championship caliber clubs that may help them kind of restock the farm system a little bit and get moving back in the right direction. Another interesting player on the roster is Elvis Andrews. He signed that $100 million extension a few years ago, and it seemed crazy at the time. And now he actually has an opt-out clause, and he had such a good year last year, there's speculation that he might opt out at the end of the year if he has another good year like that. Uh, Do you think that the Rangers actually want him to opt out so they can rebuild? I think the Rangers, I I ultimately think Elvis is going to remain here. I think he's going to opt out, and I think the Rangers will try and and re-sign him to a uh, a deal that will get him a little bit more money or another year or two worth of security. And uh, you're right. You know, two years ago, you looked at that contract, and you were like, this is one of the worst extensions that was ever signed. All of a sudden, two years later, here you are looking at a guy who's had tremendous growth on and off the field and he's now a 300 hitter with some pop in his bat, and the $15 million annually looks like a very adequate, uh, maybe even below market salary for, for who he is. You know, Elvis has played almost a decade in the big leagues now. He's going to be 29 years old in, uh, in August. This is a guy who's still got some prime years left. So I think the Rangers do want to keep him around, and I do think that they will work on getting that done. Uh, but certainly if they do fall out and if the negotiations on, on some kind of uh, renegotiated extension don't go well, he's also a guy who might have some value to another club, and it would potentially at that point in time give the Rangers a chance to move Profar into the shortstop slot. 
Profar, we've been hearing his name as like the next coming and a future top prospect for, I feel like, 20 years. What is their expectation with Profar at this point? He really hasn't produced anything. When he's played, he's been injury prone. Do they actually think they can get value from him on the field or in a trade? Yeah, I, I thought that the Rangers really needed this winner to, um, to go ahead and move him. I think he needs a change of scenery. I think he would like to play shortstop or middle infield, and that opportunity certainly doesn't exist for, here with the Rangers. But I think this team right now is committed to, unless they get real value for him, and it's going to be hard to do since he's only got, he's, he's not a guy that a club would control for four or five years. He's, he's, he's going to have three years of control going into 2018. Uh, he's an arbitration eligible player, clearly. And as you said, you know, this was a guy who was twice considered the number one prospect in all of baseball. He hasn't really lived up to that billing when he's been healthy. So um, I, I think if the Rangers traded him now, they'd simply be moving him to give him a change of scenery. I think the opportunity, along with the philosophy that I, I talked about earlier of giving their guys an opportunity to play early in the season, uh, he could be a guy that, that goes out and, and has some success and reestablishes some value, and the Rangers are able to deal him as a very valuable piece to a club come the the deadline because he would have, at that point, two and a half years of control to another club with a very manageable salary, uh, and he's a switch hitter who uh, can play shortstop, can play second base. Uh, he plays first. He, he, he may play some first base for the Rangers this year, has played a little bit of the outfield, he could be a very versatile and valuable piece, but he's got to reestablish on the field value right now. The last thing I want to ask you about the Rangers before we move on to the Hall of Fame is Joey Gallo. He was a elite prospect and a highly rated prospect for a while. It took him a while to, to actually break in, broke in, and he sort of lived up to the scouting report, struck out a ton, didn't make a ton of contact. When he did, it was tremendous power. He had a lot of home runs. Will he have a regular spot in the lineup, and what did the Rangers expect from him this year? Oh, he'll definitely have a regular spot in the lineup. Don't know if he'll have a regular position. Uh, I would, I would think that right now the way this team lines up, he fits best at first base, and I do think that Joey has the ability to be an above average, maybe a well above average defensive first baseman. Uh, but if you're going to play pro far, the best spot to play pro far might be at first base. And Joey, despite being a very big man, is is a very adequate outfielder with a, with a I think a plus arm, so he could end up playing some left field as well. Uh, I think that's still to be determined, um, but he's going to be in the lineup every day, and I think the Rangers are comfortable with where he's at. Clearly, the batting average has got to come up a little bit, and I think the the, the way he's going to have to do that is to show that he can hit the ball the opposite way a little bit. He did lose a number of balls, uh, base hits on the shift, um, but the power and the strike zone judgment, even with the number of strike zones, uh, the number of strikeouts, there are a ton of walks there. The on-base percentage, I think, was was better than than I would have expected for him uh, last year, based on what I had seen previously. I think he's grown a lot in in, in one full year of, of experience on the field, and and I think there is there is more to be refined there, and I think he's very capable of doing that very quickly. Onto the Hall of Fame, you uh, you're, you've been voting for the Hall of Fame for a while. How many ballots have you filled out now? How long have you been voting? I think I've been voting about twelve or thirteen years now. I just want to get your general philosophy when you 
get the ballot in the mail and you open up the package and there's the ballot, how do you go about approaching it? I think I, my general philosophy was probably galvanized by a visit to the Hall of Fame in May this year when I was working on some stuff ahead of Pudge's um, induction. And, uh, you know, you, you walk into the Hall of Fame portion of the museum and in front of the gallery of plaques, which is really all the Hall of Fame is, the rest of it is, is museum, uh, there is a statue, uh, not a statue, a sculpture there of Jackie Robinson, Lou Gehrig, and, and Jackie Robinson. And to me, that's what the Hall of Fame is. It embodies guys who are pioneers, who were courageous, who were sportsmen, who changed the game, uh, and that they carried themselves as, as citizens in a certain way. That's the, that's the visual I have in my mind. That's the, that's what it means to me. But I think ultimately, for every voter, it's a, it's always going to be something subjective. You can't quantify this as um, empirically with data. You just can't because there are different. I think there are different elements that add to different guys' candidacy. For example, guys that I voted for this year. You know, Edgar Martinez, if you stack up his offense, his, his overall offensive numbers, there are other guys with, with better offensive numbers, but I think Edgar really was the first guy to establish himself as a legitimate DH only, um, who was a, an, an offensive threat at all times and, and, you know, owned a spot purely as a DH and as a great hitter as a DH. Um, I, I know there, the the value of closers has been somewhat denigrated over the last couple of years, but for me, you know, Trevor Hoffman was was a, a, a transcendent closer. Uh, you look at a guy like Kurt Schilling, and and I quite frankly, I feel like Mike Messina was was the better regular season pitcher, but Kurt Schilling had great moments in in the postseason that uh, that I think are. Uh, while they, you know, they don't, you can't rank them necessarily compared to other guys because the, the sample size is so small for, for guys in, in, in postseason performance. You do look at them, and, and in the history of baseball, these are things that stand out. Guys to me, you know, I, guys to me like, like uh, uh, one guy that I've always wondered about that, you know, never has gotten a whole lot of, of, of traction uh, for the Hall of Fame, whether it was when he was on the ballot or when he was considered by the Veterans Committee. But Roger Maris authored one of the greatest stories in the history of baseball. And for me, that alone is is worthy of Hall of Fame consideration. So I think the numbers are all important. I think the contributions are all important. But I also think this is, this is a game of, of, of humans, and it's a game of, of, of memories and stories and Ultimately, those are things that have to be considered, and there's no easy way to kind of funnel all that down and distill it into some kind of formula. Last year, you voted for Bonds and Clemens for the first time. You kept them on your ballot this year. Why did you make the switch? I I guess the easy, not easy, I guess the most honest answer I could tell you is probably in my head we've moved so far away from steroid era and they there was no hard penalty for me the 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 one hard line that i i can't i I haven't been able to cross off is 
you know, multiple suspensions. Manny had multiple suspensions. And for me, that's, that's just a line I can't cross. So the Clemens and Bonds thing, I think to some extent, you know, it's, it is the passage of time. I know that's going to sound lazy to some people, but I'm just trying to be honest here. Uh, and I, I do feel like you have to consider that these guys did not have any kind of suspension. They were not subject to any penalties. Um, and I, in some regards, I also listen to, to fans, and I think that, you know, the feedback I get from fans is that in their museum and in their uh, shrine to the greatest baseball players, I still feel like the majority of fans want to see Bonds and Clemens enshrined. Did Bud Seeley going in, or Tony La Russa going in for that matter, have anything to do with your decision in voting for them? You know, I know the Bud, the, the Bud thing was, was a good narrative last year. I, I don't know that I consciously considered that, um, but I certainly heard or saw people making that argument. I just feel like after after years of of taking this hard line against anybody connected to the steroid era, I guess I'm getting old and soft, and I just consider the the um, some of the numbers to be uh, just historic, obviously historic. But I I I don't see the commissioner being selected as a reason for why I would or would not vote for for Clemens or Bonds the same way I, you know, I, if anything, if anything's impacted my mind one way or another, I guess I had a negative reaction to the Joe Morgan letter, which I'm sure you'd like to ask about. That was my next question. What were your thoughts on the Morgan letter? You know, I, when I went to the hall and I worked on stuff related to the Pudge induction, obviously I asked some questions um, about steroids and about voting guidelines and things like that. And nothing I got from Jeff Idelson at the Hall of Fame or or anybody connected to the Hall of Fame gave me any indication that these guys should not be considered. Um, for Joe to send out that letter on his own, uh, I understand that it looks like to a lot of people that's the Hall saying that, uh, that, that these guys shouldn't be considered because he is a vice chairman for the Hall. The Hall did... Uh, use its mailing list to send to send out the letter to voters, um, but I just I, I know that the argument exists that that um, I think I saw Michael Young tweet this recently that that steroids that, that greenies and amphetamines were performance um, enhancing drugs, but uh, steroids and and HGH were were performance changing drugs and and they they just completely changed the fabric of the game but i I still feel like in no time has this been a game where guys didn't seek an edge somehow some way uh, and I think it's a little bit hypocritical for Joe on his own to say um, we stand above and be uh, above the uh, kind of above the scrum of these other players. Uh, what went on in the seventies and eighties, what went on in the sixties, uh, they had their own, they had their own issues. And, um, so it kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Uh, in addition, you know, I, I think it would have been one thing 
if I'd have, if that letter had been signed by a number of Hall of Famers, but he did refer to multiple Hall of Famers, but it had only one name on it. It had only Joe Morgan's name on it. So um, I, I didn't quite take it as there were enough guys that were willing to tackle this among the Hall of Fame group. Uh, and so ultimately it just kind of, it, it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I don't think it changed how I voted one way or another, but I do think that I, I felt like it was unnecessary and only served to probably convolute the process for some people. Just out of curiosity, when Morgan sent out this batch email to all of the voters, did he BCC everybody, or could you see everybody's emails? Did he just put everybody's emails into the <laughs> to the two file? I'm guessing it was BCC because I don't recall seeing all, all the uh, all the other voters voters names. And and I also want to make clear that it was you know it didn't the letter didn't come on Hall of Fame letterhead. Um, it didn't it didn't say you know this is the Hall of Fame's perspective, but but clearly the Hall which, which is of uh, a, a body that is very sensitive to its members, and clearly Joe has, has been very active in the hall. Um, it, it's clear that that they were that they helped him send the, the the letter out, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I think that's true, and I want to ask you a little bit about. I saw Michael Young's tweet as well, and I. I disagree with his overall premise because I think when it comes to cheating in general, the results shouldn't matter. And I know that sounds crazy, but what should right. actually matter is the intent. Well, mm. of course, drugs of the 90s work better than drugs of the 60s. Correct. But the intent behind them is the same. They took drugs to increase their performance. Let's not pretend that the intent was anything different. I think that the PED guys should be in. I think the Hall should acknowledge that they used. I don't think that's that hard. But I think that part of the reason why I think they should be in is because cheating has existed in every era. It's only this type of cheating that seems to keep people out of the Hall of Fame. And it's just so inconsistent with, yes, they cheated. I think Bonds and Clemens knew what they were doing was wrong. Now, right. I don't think they thought they would be the subject of federal investigations and have federal agents following them around and digging through their garbage and face felony charges. I don't think they, they thought they would come to that. But I think just strictly on the field, I think they thought what they were doing was wrong. However, I, I think that the players who took amphetamines and I think the players who scuffed balls and like Gaylord Perry and Don Sutton, I think they thought they were doing something wrong, too. And they were getting away with it. I, I, you know, I don't know that anybody thought that they were, quote unquote, in their mind doing something wrong. I think they felt like everybody in the game is looking for an edge. Here is where I can exploit the system to my advantage. This is my path to exploit things to, to my advantage. Whereas other guys may have different things that they can exploit. And, and they, they you know, it's kind of a, a mass, uh, mass population type thing that, hey, everybody's doing it. Everybody's looking for an edge somewhere. And, and everybody has looked for an edge somewhere in every age of, of, of baseball. Um, I, I think uh, it, it, is, it is a little bit different in the, the steroid era. Uh, certainly, maybe because bodies change so dramatically, um, there's more evidence that guys that guys were doing something uh, that, that did allow them to do superhuman things. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I agree that at 
in the fifties and the sixties, greenies were what guys were able to get a hold of, and it was what they felt like would separate them from being able to uh, just go out and stand on the field and go out there and excel. So, um, as long as the hall puts these guys on the ballot, you know, if the hall wants to say that that uh, if you've been suspended for steroid for steroid use, you're you're not you're no longer eligible. We vote at the hall's leisure. Um, and, and if, if they make that change, that's fine by me. But for the time being, I think these guys deserve consideration. And I, I still go back to with the, the case of Manny being the one guy on there that, that, that I didn't vote for. For me, there's still lines of, Hey, you were caught one time. You were wrong but to be multiple, but multiple suspensions for me at that point in time, you're willfully trying to break the law. And for me, that's, that's just a hard line. And you know, there are guys who voted for Manny and voted for Clemens and Bonds as well. And there are guys who didn't vote for all three. For me, that's where the, mar- the, line, of, uh, the line of demarcation is. Yeah, and I, I want to just talk about the amphetamines for one more thing, because I remember last year on ESPN they had the Doc and Daryl documentary. I don't know if you saw that. It was about Gooden and Strawberry. And they talked, you know, they reunited and they talked about all their problems. But within the first two minutes of the movie, Strawberry's like, well, when you're on amphetamines, the ball looks as big as a beach ball. That's like one of the first things he said. And I just remember thinking, why do we not think amphetamines are performance enhancing? They seem to be. And we know that many of the great seasons in history, from many of the great players in history, were done under the influence of amphetamines. I don't think that we can actually say for certain that amphetamines were not as much of a performance enhancer as steroids. I, I don't know the answer to that. You know, and I think it still gets back to the point I tried to make a little while ago is that I I feel like, you know, it's great that fans are passionate about this. And I, I love the give and take uh, that I get every year when I when I release my ballot and I'm more than happy to answer questions. Um, but I think what, what people need to understand is you can't make it a perfect shrine. You, you can't make it perfect. There's going to be guys in there who for a segment of the population don't meet the criteria. And there's going to be guys in there who for a segment of the, of, of the, uh, of the fan base, um, did something wrong. Uh, and, and so, you know, you do the best you can. Uh, and I, I feel like as a voter, I'm completely comfortable every year doing the best I can to select, uh, the guys that I feel are, are the most worthy uh, this year. I feel bad because I felt like uh, there were probably 12 or 13 guys I would have liked to have voted for. And the, the list is limited to 10 and you feel like there were guys that, that, you know, you're, you're leaving off that, that were, that deserved consideration, but that's the process. I do my best. I try and learn each year from other writers, from history, from, uh, from what the fans' voice uh, tells me, and then the next year I consider the ballot, and you know I that's another part of the the whole ballot process is, and and I think Ryan Thibodeau does a great job of of collecting ballots uh, and tracking it, and it's a lot of fun, and you will see that guys will have a plus or a minus, or they'll you know guys will vote for somebody one year and won't vote for them the next. And there will always be an uproar about, well, why did you vote for him one time, but you wouldn't vote for him later? Or as you asked me, why, 
why wouldn't you vote for bonds, but you do vote for them now? And, and I think it, it just as an elector, whether it's politics or, or sports, as you as you age and as you go through the process and as you hopefully learn more, your criteria and your platforms may may change a little bit, and, and what you consider may 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 change. And there's some there's some evolution of that for the voters as well. I think that that's that's only natural, and I think that I, I hope fans understand that portion of it. Your full ballot is Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Chipper Jones, Jim Tomey, Edgar Martinez, Vlad Guerrero, Mike Mussina, Kurt Schilling, Larry Walker, and Trevor Hoffman. Looks like it's going to be a class of four this year. Do you already look ahead to next year and the year after? Do you know who's coming? Do you, is that something that you do, or do you sort of just prepare as you get the ballot? I prepare kind of, you know, once I get the ballot. Um, I, uh, I know that, you know, we will have... We'll have the Jeters, Amara, the Riveras, and to me, if there's if there's anybody who ever embodies what a Hall of Famer should be, you know, if there's for me the guy who should be in this era now where we we do track the the 100 percenters um, or the guys who should be 100 percenters. If there's a guy now who should be a 100 percent guy, it's Mariano Rivera. Um, we'll see if that happens. Um, I know we've got. We're going to have the controversy over Alex Rodriguez, um, and uh, I, you know, I think that the logjam. I do think you're going to see another large class this year. You saw a large class last year. You're going to see another large class this year, and maybe the logjam will will start to abate, uh, uh, and it will be a little bit easier to pick your uh, your class of Hall of Famers from year to year. You've been listening to Evan Grant. He covers the Rangers for the Dallas Morning News. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Evan underscore P underscore Grant. Evan, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. My pleasure, Ross.